Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. here. In this episode, we're setting sail for an adventure on the high seas. In our connected, globalised world, the question of who governs the oceans is increasingly urgent. As mining capabilities develop, the seabed becomes more and more valuable, just at the moment when environmental concerns are at an all-time high. Meanwhile, our reliance on the seamless flow of shipping lanes was highlighted when the Ever Given lodged itself in the Suez Canal last year, blocking the major route between the Far East and the Mediterranean and causing widespread disruption. Things have changed dramatically in recent decades. Onboard refrigeration and trawl devices have made it feasible for fishing fleets to travel thousands of miles from their home ports, spending months at sea and depleting fish stocks to the point of extinction. In parts of the world, the sea has become an arena of political tension as countries attempt to increase their maritime status, laying claim to strategic islands, extending the area of coastal sea they control and asserting their power over important trade routes. David Bosco discusses all these fascinating issues and many more besides in The Poseidon Project, The Struggle to Govern the World's Oceans. In this episode, David takes us back to 1982, a fraught year on the high seas when Britain was battling Argentina in the South Atlantic for control of the Falkland Islands. David Bosco is an Associate Professor of International Studies at Indiana University's Hamilton Luger School of Global and International Studies. I spoke to David the other day. Welcome to Travel Through Time, David Bosco. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. I know that you're joining us today from Indiana. And uh, before we begin our conversation, which is going to be about your new book, The Poseidon Project, The Struggle to Govern the World's Oceans, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background and um, jobs that you've done in your life, because you, you've had a very, very interesting career. And, I, and if you could give us that background first, and then we'll launch into this book and why you've written it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think I'd always known I was very interested in international relations, um, you know, so that was what I studied in in university. And um, I... Um, and then actually, I was over in the UK for a for a master's degree, uh, kind of following up on those studies. But this was during the period of the um, war in the in Bosnia, and so um, right after I submitted my master's thesis, I um, headed over to um, Sarajevo to work in uh, in Bosnia. Um, the war had just ended, so this was in the months after the peace agreement, and it was focused on refugee issues and. Um, trying to get people back to their homes after the war but it was a it was a fascinating experience and kind of introduction to you know international politics and um and international law in in some ways because you had the war crimes uh investigations going on and you had um a lot of different uh legal processes playing out in in bosnia so it was um a very interesting couple of years and then i i came back to the us to go to law school um and um ended up working at a big international law firm for a couple of years uh which uh it was a good experience um but i, I knew i didn't want to do it for too long and i and then i uh transitioned to um uh, the journalism world to foreign policy magazine, where I was an editor for a number of years, and um, and then into academia. So it's been a yeah, it's been kind of a winding path. And how do you? It must have been very interesting, um, as you say, you were studying, and then you went to Bosnia. And I, yeah. How do, how does that um, interplay between the theory that you're learning at university and then actually seeing on the ground how it works in practice? Yeah, that was a very because right, I'd been very focused on it and and you know had been reading as much as I could find about it, but then to actually go into the country, 
Um, and I remember, you know, driving into Bosnia for the first time and, you know, seeing the destruction and um, the effects of the war was very, you know, it, it obviously hits you in a very different way seeing it and then interacting with, you know, some of the people who um, had suffered its effects. And, you know, we, we did some projects with um, people who needed to be medically evacuated out of Bosnia and, um, so you got a real kind of firsthand sense of of what the costs of the war had been. Um, so it was, uh, but at the same time, you had those big political processes that you know that I'd studied playing out, and so um, that part didn't go away, but it was just accompanied now by this this kind of human dimension. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to your book now, um, the Poseidon Project. It's such a fascinating and and for me is completely out of my uh, arena of of knowledge and i found it so interesting and and i hope that we get to um discuss a lot of the issues that you talk about mining wrecks pirates research fishing i mean it, it's just <laughs> so describe to us uh, the what the book is about and and also why you felt the need to write it yeah, and I think it it kind of follows on in some ways from my earlier work, you know, as, as an international lawyer interested in international cooperation and organizations, you know, I'd done earlier books on the history of the UN Security Council and the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And so in that sense, I was interested in international governance of the oceans and I wanted to write an accessible, interesting history of it because I think there is so much about it that's interesting. But one of my frustrations was that a lot of the literature about it, it gets very technical very fast because you basically have kind of lawyers arguing about, you know, fine points and in international treaties. And, and I wanted to try to present a, an accessible history of this process of figuring out how to govern the oceans. And, um, it was more challenging, I would say, than the other book projects because the subject is so vast and, uh, you know, I'm dealing with a bunch of different international organizations and different issues, as you mentioned, you know, seabed mining and piracy and uh, naval competition and trying to weave it all together was a real challenge. Um, so I, ho I hope I've managed to do it in a way that's uh, digestible. Yeah, and it's, you know, you know, it's so interesting and a lot of it, I, when I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, my God, of course. Oh, yeah. Why hadn't I why haven't I thought about that? You know, I mean, it is something the oceans are something that we should all be aware of, especially with regards to the environmental angle, which, of course, has become increasingly important in recent years. Yes. Um, and there's and there's a there's an image. You know, I think we often kind of forget that the that the oceans, of course, are, you know, 70 percent of the Earth's surface. And there's a wonderful image, you know, taken from space, wh where if you catch the Earth at the right angle, essentially all you see is ocean. Um, you know, you, it's in the Pacific, and 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 it makes you, you know, astronauts have talked about this and how it makes them realize that, you know, this is a blue planet and the oceans is is really the dominant feature, and yet obviously, human activity is is largely on on land, and so that's what we focus on, but. Um, figuring out how to govern this 70% of the Earth's surface is an enormous task. And why, can you explain a bit about why this is becoming a problem now? Because, you know, if for centuries we, we lived by this um, phrase, the freedom of the seas, and it seemed to work quite well, uh, I guess because, partly because our capabilities were such that we just couldn't access you know, you, we, we could travel uh, with in ships, but but we, we didn't have the capabilities that we have now of mining and, and kind of staking claim to the high seas, the, the, the oceans. So what's been happening recently that has um, changed or that is changing? Right. So there are there are several different dimensions of it. And um, part of it is, um, I mean, as you say, technological change has greatly increase the human ability to use and exploit the oceans. And so when the idea of freedom of the seas was, um, was introduced and that, you know, most famously by, by Hugo Grotius in, in the early 1600s, to him, it seemed that the resources of the ocean were totally inexhaustible. You know, you could just, there's no, no way in which one 
country fishing somewhere could really detract from the ability of someone else to use the ocean's resources. And so some of his arguments rested on that idea of the inexhaustibility of the ocean's resources. But now we've got, you know, super trawlers and, um, you know, enormously efficient um, fishing fleets that go far afield that have refrigerated, um, you know, storage capacity that can stay at, at sea for months. And so we've realized, of course, that the, that the resources of the sea are not uh, inexhaustible. And uh, people who track uh, fish stocks have, have grown increasingly alarmed uh, over recent decades about the state of many fish stocks around the world. This has become really evident um, recently kind of off the coast of South America, where you've seen large, uh, largely Chinese fishing fleets showing up and just conducting enormous, uh, pulling in enormous hauls as the coastal states kind of watch. Um, but then it's, it's not just fish, of course. It's, it's, as you mentioned, the technological ability to mine the deep seabed, which is something that um, has been talked about for decades, but is now really only really now becoming a commercial possibility. And that's got a number of scientists and environmentalists very alarmed because we're only now understanding some of these ecosystems at the in, in the depths. And to kind of go down there and mine um, could have enormous uh, implications for some of those ecosystems. So that's a big um, part of what's going on is, is the human ability to exploit the oceans has, has grown so exponentially. And then from a kind of national perspective, I mean, you know, governments and sovereigns have always liked the idea of being able to control areas of the ocean, you know, because it could be useful to them strategically, economically, but the capacity of navies and coast guards to actually do that um, has again jumped with uh, remote sensing, with you know underwater drones, um, and so on. On many different levels, the human ability to control and exploit the oceans has has really exploded, and that makes some of these governance questions very acute in in ways that they weren't before. Mm. And one thing that I, I found particularly interesting, and and I'd sort of felt bad that I'd never really thought about it. So can you explain how much of the sea off the coast of any particular country does that country own or control? Because it is right, isn't it, that, you know, the the area around, you know, say Britain, for a few miles out, out to sea, that is Britain, still Britain, still counts as that country. Is that correct? Can you explain that? And this has been this was a big issue running through the book, and, and it was something very hard to negotiate um, for for a long time. Um, and and actually, Britain played a very key role in trying to to keep this limit for a long time. The 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 rule was three miles right. that you could go three miles from the coast would be considered national waters where only that that country and its its inhabitants would have the right to fish um and and essentially it was national territory um you know the the origins of that uh, um are kind of interesting it, it was often referred to as the cannon shot rule um because the notion was well you can control as far out to sea as a cannon can shoot you know the idea being if you can kind of exclude others from land, but by means of you know shore-based cannon, and that that's rightfully yours. And and at that time, I mean, in the 1600s, 1700s, um, three miles was kind of used as a rule of thumb. But um, but that started to change in the 20th century when when a lot of countries started making much bigger claims, saying why should we be limited to three miles? We want to you know own the waters out to a hundred or maybe even two hundred miles. And so what we've ended up with after a big complex negotiation that went on for much of the 1980s was a 12 mile territorial sea. Okay, so we've quadrupled the traditional size of the territorial sea. But the other big change is that coastal countries got to control the economic resources out to 200 miles. 
So that means they don't control, they don't own those waters in the sense that, you know, that within 12 miles they do, but they control fishing, they control mining, they control um, any economic activities essentially in those waters. That's called the exclusive economic zone. So I guess it, I guess that's probably the most accurate way to say it is kind of out to 200 miles, the coastal state has significant control. Okay. And landlocked countries, just bad luck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this has been an issue throughout the negotiations, um, you know, landlocked countries um, trying to figure out how they can have their rights. They, they have the right to, to, you know, flag vessels so they can, a landlocked country can have vessels out there. Um, and they may have, they have some rights to kind of access the ocean, although that's a little bit murky. Um, but they don't get a territorial sea and they don't get an exclusive economic zone of their own, no. No. Um, so I think now um, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, um, which is if you could go back uh, to a year in history, David, which year would it be? Right. And the book, you know, the book goes back in, in some ways even to ancient times, but I think the year would be 1982 um, because, well, for a couple of different reasons I, I, I can talk about, but I think that would be the year I would select, which um, I, hope, I hope qualifies as a history still. Well, I don't know. I was thinking about it for me, who's normally, you know, in the ancient world or, or at least the medieval world. I was thinking, is this is this politics or is it history? But um, it's within my lifetime, which is a huge thrill. Um, I actually remember 1982 vaguely. Uh, um, and it's yeah, definitely for my kids, it it's, would be ancient history. Um, but it is our, our most recent year on our timeline. Um, so it's the most recent year that we've ever visited um, in on Travels Through Time. So you, you've got that accolade. Um, so can you tell us, tell us a bit about 1982 and, and the, the sort of general, what, what was going on uh, on the seas in 1982? Set the scene for us a bit. Yeah, so 19, 1982, uh, we are, you know, in um, political terms, we're very much in the Cold War. Um, in fact, the Cold War has become kind of colder um, and tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union are are fairly intense with the election of uh, of Ronald Reagan, who's who's been elected on a very hawkish platform toward the Soviet Union. Um, you know, fears about. I mean, I remember this as a kid. You know, fears about nuclear war. Um, you know, were very much kind of part of uh, part of the landscape, um, and so it was a. Um, you know, in geopolitical terms, it was a very uh, kind of fraught period, I would say. Judging from the photos of, you know, family photos, it was a very fraught period uh, in, in fashion terms as well. <laughs> um, a great period in, in, in the history of music, though. There was some fantastic uh, music around then. That, that, that helped, I think. Um, okay, so uh, let's go to your first scene, which w takes us right to the top of the globe but it does involve some of these political issues um so wh where are we going right so we're going um to the very northern reaches of the canadian arctic um uh, and, and a place called uh, called ellesmere island um and there are um there's a small group of explorers kind of uh huddled there and they're they're kind of wintering there um, and this was um, Sir Ranuff Fiennes, um, who is a kind of classic British explorer type. He'd been in the British Army. I think he'd gotten himself kicked out of the Special Air Service for some kind of stunt, um, but had, had gone on to be, you know, kind of the leader of various expeditions. And he'd had the idea of trying to, um, you know, essentially within a year, reach both the South Pole and the North Pole. Um, and so he's done the South Pole already. And they've, the expedition has kind of moved by boat up uh, to the Arctic. And he's just, uh, he and the team have just finished completing the Northwest Passage, um, which is a kind of fabled 
sea route um, that has, you know, uh, has been a, a kind of focus of, of interest because it's a way of kind of cutting um, transit times if you can find a way through the Arctic um, by sea. And so he's actually managed uh, to, to get through the Northwest Passage and is then kind of sheltering uh, in, on Ellesmere Island in Canada uh, and then waiting uh, for a, a few months and he's gonna make the trek across the Arctic ice to, to the North Pole. Um, but I think it was quite important to him and his team that he make the um, pat, you know, make that trip through the Northwest Passage because of all of the historical interest and all of the explorers in the past who, some of whom had died attempting to complete the Northwest Passage. Um, but he and his team were able to do it in a, in a relatively small open boat. And, and was it, because on the map, and I hope that we're going to be able to put a copy of that map on, um, on our website so people can have a look at it, but it, there's loads of islands, aren't there, north of Canada? And, and the Northwest Passage, was that one particular route or was it just if whatever route you could find through it? Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's through the kind of Canadian archipelago up there. And so there, are, and it's, it's a little bit misleading to say the passage because you're quite right that there are different passages and there are different routes that you can take to kind of make it from the Pacific over to the other side and, or, or vice versa. And um, he and his team had selected the kind of particular route that they thought they were able to make given the state of the ice, et cetera. Yeah, because it's very weather dependent, I would imagine, that kind of journey. Uh, and hadn't they been looking, I mean, wasn't the Northwest Passage something that they started trying to find in Elizabethan times? Yeah, it, it had been a focus even that far back. And then in the 1850s was when it was kind of first completed successfully. Although I think they that that initial one, they completed part by boat and then part by sledge. Um, so and so the ice obviously, you know, makes things in, incredibly difficult, but but it is this object of fascination, you know, can we figure out this kind of shortcut of a route? Um, and so it, it, it's something that has really drawn people, um, you know, over the centuries. But it never became a route, did it? And I mean, it isn't a route today, or is it? Well, that's the interesting thing is, and, and I think such an interesting thing about this moment is that he and his team were going right on the cusp of the Northwest Passage becoming more viable as a route. Um, and so if you look, and there's a, there are a couple services that, that keep track of all of the successful passages or the successful trips through the Northwest Passage. And you see that the number of successful passages increases as we move into the later 80s, 90s, and then into the 2000s to the point where we're getting kind of regular commercial, not a lot, I don't wanna overstate it, but you are getting some regular commercial traffic through the Northwest Passage. And you're also getting some, um, you know, sightseeing kind of cruise ship voyages. Yeah. Um, and, and this is because the ice is, the ice coverage is changing, of course, as a, as a result of, of uh, climate change. So he's there, he and his team are there really right on the cusp of the Northwest Passage becoming even more of a um, object of uh, fascination and, and in a sense, commercial realization or the beginnings of commercial realization of the Northwest Passage. Um, and then can you talk a bit about the relationship between Canada and the US and the Northwest Passage? Because that became quite a bone of contention, didn't it? And it, 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 in some ways, it, they've agreed to disagree now, but it remains a bone of contention that could become more acute. And, and just a few years after this expedition, um, the U.S. sent a Coast Guard icebreaker through the Northwest Passage, and it became extremely controversial between Canada and the U.S. because the U.S. did not request Canadian permission. And um, that is because there is a difference of view between the United States and Canada about the status of the Northwest Passage with the United States arguing that it is, that the Northwest Passage is an international strait. And that is a special status under international law, uh, meaning, you know, a narrow passage that connects two areas of the open ocean. And that is supposed to be open for everybody to use. 
Can you give us some examples of other ones? Yeah, sure. So the Strait of Gibraltar would be a classic case um, connecting the Atlantic and the Mediterranean and the Strait of Hormuz, Strait of Malacca, uh, connecting the Indian Ocean and, and the South China Sea. And these are, um, several of those are, of course, major thoroughfares for traffic. The, the Northwest Passage is not yet, um, but the U.S. is quite insistent that this be seen as an international strait, whereas from Canada's standpoint, at least parts of the Northwest Passage go through Canadian waters. And therefore, Canada's view is uh, essentially it's, it's under Canadian control and, and Canada's permission needs to be sought. Um, and so that really came to a head in the mid-1980s between the U.S. and Canada after the passage of this um, U.S. icebreaker. And, um, and Canada kind of took the next steps to really formalize its, its claim um, to the Northwest Passage. Now, as I say, the U.S. and Canada have basically ag agreed to disagree at this point, um, but it's an issue that's not going to go away, I don't think, and particularly if the Northwest Passage becomes more uh, commercially viable, I, I would expect that this would come to a, a head at some point. And didn't they do something quite sort of typically Canadian and, and charming to the boat, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> While the U.S. Coast Guard vessel was passing through, a, I think some Canadian activists had rented a plane and they um, they dropped on oh, they dropped on the deck of the of the icebreaker a, a canister full of canadian flags to you know <laughs> express their it seemed a little aggressive from a canadian standpoint but um to to symbolize the the canadian control of um uh of the northwest passage one one thing that was interesting in the book is that canada which you think of well, at least I covering multilateral issues, I often think of Canada as kind of a good multilateral citizen. Yeah. Very interested in global processes, et cetera. But they, they take on a different dimension when you look at uh, Canada's maritime behavior. Um, and um, Canada um, can become quite assertive about certain, you know, of, of its maritime claims, including on the fishing front. Uh, and there were a couple incidents where ca Canadian patrols went and chased off foreign fishing vessels, even beyond that 200 miles we spoke about. So really kind of quite not not clearly in in in, in uh, compliance with international law, but they've they've chased off uh, foreign fishing vessels. And so um, Canada's a little a little different when you look at it through a maritime lens. Yeah, I, I was surprised when I read that as well, that it didn't seem characteristic. Um, Let's go to your second scene now, and um, we are going to have to get on a very large, comfortable boat in order to get there. We've got a, we've got a long journey. <laughs> where are we? Where are we going? So we are now going uh, to another remote area to the uh, South Atlantic, um, and we are going to a spot in the South Atlantic about five hundred miles northeast of the uh, Falkland Islands. Um, so right, kind of remote South Atlantic, uh, 500 miles from the, from the Falkland Islands is the spot. And what's happening there? I think I can guess because that is one of my abiding memories of that period of my childhood was my dad listening to the radio and telling me to be quiet because he wanted to hear what was happening in the Falklands conflict. Yes. And so this is in, in uh, if we were up in the in the Canadian Arctic in January, this would be in June and June 8th, 1982 in particular. And um, there is a, you know, a tanker, um, a civilian tank, a tanker um, called the Hercules, which is transiting through that area of the South Atlantic, um, having departed from the Virgin Islands and um, on its way up to Alaska. I think what, what was going on is there's a refinery in the Virgin Islands and then oil is picked up in Alaska. And I think it was on the way back from the refinery to pick up more oil in Alaska. And um, this vessel uh, is suddenly bombed um, by an aircraft. And um, this was of course a, um, a consequence of the Falkland Islands conflict, which was playing out at that point between the UK and Argentina. Um, it was unclear uh, initially 
whose aircraft had bombed the Hercules. Um, in subsequent weeks and months, it became fairly clear that it was an Argentine aircraft um, that had uh, struck the Hercules, thinking, I believe, that the Hercules was going to be bringing um, oil, potentially, uh, or fuel to, to British forces um, uh, in and around the, the Falkland Islands. Um, the Hercules was lucky. It, it, um, it had a mostly Italian crew, I believe, and um, it didn't sink immediately. It was able to limp uh, toward um, the, the South American coast, and, um, but ultimately was scuttled uh, because the damage was seen as, as too much and there was a bomb that they couldn't dislodge from, uh, from the hole. Um, and so, uh, so the Hercules was, was lost. And I think what's, you know, what's kind of important about this is it highlighted and really the Falklands conflict, which was one of the first major naval engagements since World War II, highlighted this issue of what happens during naval combat to civilian vessels and what happens to maritime commerce generally. Um, and it was kind of a reminder that actually things, it's very likely if there's any sustained naval combat, it is going to have enormous ramifications for maritime commerce, which is so important, of course. And, and so much of the world's goods are, are trans, uh, transited by sea. Um, during World War I and World War II, there were massive and unprecedented restrictions on maritime commerce through a couple of different means. Um, you know, the British tried to strangle Germany um, by closing off access to the North Sea, essentially. Um, there were mines used. And then, of course, there was unrestricted submarine warfare. And um, I think the world kind of forgot about that in some ways after the World Wars. But the Falklands conflict was a reminder that the rules that had existed had basically broken down during the world wars and there, you know, countries who were fighting um, were going to put massive restrictions on maritime commerce. And, and I think the Falklands conflict and, and the plight of the Hercules in particular was a, was a reminder of that reality. But not one that that's been dealt with, has it? I mean, not really. I mean, there are rules of naval combat. Um, and, you know, there are rules about how civilian vessels get treated. But what you saw Britain do and Argentina do during the Falklands conflict was essentially declare enormous areas of the ocean to be off limits. Um, you know, say 200 miles uh, exclusion zone. And um, that was a reflection of tactics that were used during the world wars and are very much kind of fly in the face of, of international law that had existed prior to the world wars. Um, so that I know that problem has not been really dealt with. And it's something that for people looking at the current, you know, maritime friction is very troubling because if you think of the South China sea or, or something like that, where there's a real possibility of, um, of naval combat, if the precedent of the Falklands and then the world wars before that are any guide, you would have massive restrictions and, and an enormous disruption to, um, to civilian maritime traffic. Yeah, and supply chains. I mean, we saw that with um, the Ever Given yes. last year. It doesn't take- I mean, that was a great reminder for people about how dependent we are on on maritime flows. And then more generally, we've seen kind of supply chain issues and ports getting backed up. But something like conflict in the South China Sea would, um, I mean, would really be enormous in terms of the disruptions for maritime commerce. Hi there, it's Peter here. Unseenhistories.com is now three months old, and already it is packed full of enticing, illuminating, and excellently presented historical material. If you give the site a visit today, you'll see many beautifully illustrated excerpts of books that we've featured on Travels Through Time. There's excerpts from Malcolm Gaskell's Ruin of All Witches, Nigel Pickford's Samuel Pepys and the Strange Wrecking of the Gloucester, and Gary Shaw's Egyptian Mythology, along with many others as well. 
For those of you who like maps, you might want to check out the utterly compelling series of pieces on the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862. That was a crucial moment in the American Civil War, along with a range of fabulously colourised images from Jordan Lloyd. It really is history for our times. Unseenhistories.com So I think now, um, if it's okay, we'll go on to your next scene because that is very much about how we um, people were trying to deal with these issues um, at the time, isn't it? So, so where are we going next? We're getting back on our ship, and now, and now we're going to to warmer climes, um, somewhere much nicer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and and all the way to Jamaica, and this would be at the very end of the year, so December tenth uh, of nineteen eighty two, and we're going to the um, Rose Hall Beach Hotel in. Montego Bay, Jamaica. And what is happening there is that diplomats and dignitaries from around the world are arriving and streaming into the hotel for the signing ceremony of uh, an enormous and enormously complicated document, which is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And it was, you know, it was the, the negotiation process started um, in the early 1970s, the negotiations dragged on all the way through the 1970s and into the early 1980s. And what they were doing, in essence, was trying to put some stability back into maritime affairs, because I think, as I mentioned to you earlier, you'd had this process of wildly different national claims to the oceans that, that really after World War II, with countries starting to claim big areas of the oceans and big territorial seas. And it, it, it came to be understood that we needed some kind of system. We needed some kind of rules that everybody could agree on about what the national zones in the ocean are. And, um, and we also needed answers to this question about the mining of the deep seabed, which we referenced um, a bit earlier, but was becoming a, a major focus. And so all of these issues got mingled together and diplomats tried to hash out a grand compromise about that. And that was reflected in this United Nations convention. And um, on that day in Montego Bay, 117 countries signed um, the agreement, which I think was the most countries that had ever signed an international treaty on a given day. Um, and that reflected the broad consensus that, okay, this is a, a complicated compromise, but it's something that we need. And, um, and, and, and you know, that we need a new rule book uh, for the oceans. And so, so that was the, the, the moment that kind of marked the uh, the culmination of this more than decades-long negotiation process. And the UN had initiated this whole thing, effectively. Is that, is that yeah, right? Yeah, it had been initiated, I mean, both by the UN itself and by member countries working through the UN, but it had been done, yes, under the auspices of, of the UN, that's right. And who didn't sign it? Because I think that's um, quite important. Yeah, that is important, um, because... As I said, there was very broad international support, but there was one country that was not there signing that day, and that was uh, the United States, which um, was the leading uh, and remains in many respects the leading maritime power. And so yeah. here you've got a big convention on the rules for the law, uh, law of the sea, and the largest maritime power is not signing it. And um, that goes back to a little bit, you know, we, des we described the overall political climate and, and the rise of Ronald Reagan um, in the United States and the Reagan administration, when it came to power, um, decided this is not something we can live with um, and, and chose um, not to sign it in large part because they didn't like the idea of there being international control over seabed mining. The rest of the convention you know, the 12 mile territorial sea that we talked about, the exclusive economic zone, all of that the United States was okay with. 
Um, but it didn't like this idea that there would be an international agency that would be giving licenses to mine the deep seabed. The U.S. wanted more like the Groshen framework of everybody go out and do what you want. And, you know, the resources of the sea are open to everybody. The Wild West, as it's been described. <laughs> but why do you think that was? Because it, it, it doesn't seem to make much sense to think that it would be a better idea to just let everyone have a free-for-all. I mean, surely that would just result in conflict almost immediately. Well, I think from the U.S. perspective, you had several U.S. companies. There weren't many companies that really were going to be able to mine the seabed. And so, and, and some of the leading contenders would have been U.S. companies. And so from the U.S. standpoint, it, it wouldn't have been a bad world for everybody to be able to go down and mine where they could because only a few countries would be able to do this and they'd be able to reap the economic rewards of it. Um, so it was greed, basically. Yeah, it was greed, but it was also <clears throat> a kind of... Um, the other th element I would say is there was a deep reluctance in the Reagan administration and in general among conservatives in the United States to empower international bureaucracies. Mm. I think that's kind of the other element here. Um, they didn't want to empower international bureaucracies and they certainly didn't want international bureaucracies getting a cut of something that private companies had spent money to you know, invest in the technology to do. And then you've got to give some of the proceeds of that to the international community, whatever that means. That was quite offensive to um, both some of the private sector actors, but also more generally to um, U.S. conservatives. And that strain of thinking is still very much there, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and here, <laughs> the whole idea of ceding power to uh, uh, an international um, or European organization, if we could use that word. There are kind of what I would see as more, <clears throat> more and less defensible perspectives on that. I mean, you know, there are important questions actually about uh, accountability of some of these international bureaucracies. And, and actually that's playing out right now on the seabed because you've got this international seabed authority, um, which is putting together regulations about mining of the seabed. And interestingly, some of the voices that are most critical of um, the International Seabed Authority are now coming not necessarily from the political right, but from the more from the kind of political left on environmental grounds, um, saying that this international bureaucracy is not responsive enough to environmental concerns. And so it's kind of an interesting uh, evolution that's happened on that issue. Yeah. And so this International Seabed Authority, that's been set up since? Yeah, it's been set up and it exists in Jamaica. Um, in recognition of Jamaica's role as the, um, you know, the, the place where the convention was signed, um, you, you have the International Seabed Authority there. It's, it's not very well known, um, but it's an international agency that in a sense has control over and the right to license the use of a vast uh, area of the deep seabed. And who's it made up of? I mean, who, who, who works there? So there's actually a British, uh, it's headed by a, a British guy, um, Michael no, Lodge. And then there's, then there's a... No surprise there. <laughs> yeah. And there's a kind of multinational staff. Right. Not, you know, not huge, you know, several dozen people who work on these issues. But as seabed mining starts to become more commercially possible there's some new attention being paid to this otherwise obscure international body and questions about whether it's really capable of doing what it's supposed to do and, and effectively regulating this new industry. And is it affiliated with the UN or not? Um, yes, it's affiliated with the UN because it was created uh, by, this, by this UN convention. So yes. Goodness me. So it's a remarkable thing. And it's... Um, and one more way in which these maritime issues are becoming more and more salient, you know, from the kind of strategic standpoint, you've got tension in the South China Sea, tension in the Mediterranean, uh, this question of these Arctic passages and, and who has the right to use them. And so there are multiple different ways. And in a sense, this big compromise that was struck and, and signed at Montego Bay is, I think, facing some real pressures now. And did um, the USA ever sign it? No, the US has not signed it. The US um, 
has, again, the U.S. view is that most of the provisions in the U.N. Convention are international law, and the U.S. says that it abides by them. And in fact, if you look at what the U.S. says about, for example, the South China Sea, the U.S. says we're defending these rules against China, which is trying to claim more of the ocean than they should. Um, but the U.S. has not signed on to it in large part because of the seabed mining issue, right. which has yeah. been actually a frustration for the U.S. military. The U.S. Navy, Coast Guard, they all want to sign on to it. Um, but the, it's been impossible to get the requisite number of senators on board because you've got to get the treaty through the uh, through the U.S. Senate, two, th- two thirds of the U.S. Senate you need. And would it change their powers? Is that why the Coast Guard wants them to sign it? They want it because they see from a um, when it comes to what the U.S. Navy does and what the U.S. Coast Guard does out uh, on the oceans. They see the United States as being in favor of the international rules, and um, therefore they want to be fully part of this convention. It wouldn't change their powers in terms of what they can do, but they can more credibly say, "Hey, we're defending the international rules, and and China is not." Um, has China signed the? China actually has, but is uh, has signed and ratified, and yet many of its activities in the South China Sea are pretty much in tension with the rules. So you've got a kind of odd situation where you have the the country that claims to be defending the international rules has not signed on to the convention. And one of the countries that um, is in in many ways putting these rules under strain has joined the convention. Extraordinary. Well, just to finish off, can you um, talk about the Homer Simpson episode? Because I think that was a really nice... And actually that maybe encapsulates some... Americans view of the, the the whole high seas issue. Yeah, and I was uh, I was clued into this by a friend of mine. So I can't claim to have uh, my my Simpsons knowledge is not as encyclopedic as as uh, this guy's knowledge. But when he heard that I was writing about this, he said, Oh, you got to watch this episode. And um, so Homer is, if, if I remember correctly, Homer is trying to buy alcohol on a Sunday. And his, uh, his town, I guess, doesn't permit the purchase of alcohol on a Sunday. And so somehow, or somebody tells him, well, if you go out onto the open ocean, you know, you can, you can buy alcohol and drink on Sunday. And so he charters a boat and crosses out beyond the 12 mile mark, I guess, it, 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 onto the open ocean. And there beholds this armada of vessels engaging in all sorts of crazy, wild, illegal, otherwise illegal activity. Um, and I think it may end with them getting captured by pirates or something like that. But um, but he says, as he crosses the line, he says, you know, welcome to international waters, the land that law forgot. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that does capture something important about the public perception of the oceans as a um, kind of lawless space. And, and on a more serious note, there is lots of lawlessness on the open ocean. And there's been some really fascinating journalism recently by, um, uh, there was a former New York Times correspondent, Ian Urbina, and then there have been a couple of other accounts of the lawlessness and uh, that happens on the oceans. A lot of it in terms of human rights abuses on vessels and, and that kind of thing. You know, I argue that lawlessness is not really the right way to think about the ocean and, and how it's governed and what's changing but um but yes there 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 is lots of lawlessness uh that happens on the ocean for sure but there's that whole issue of jurisdiction isn't there if if a crime is committed then which jurisdiction is it in and yeah and you know what really aggravates that issue is um the the phenomenon of flags of convenience which i try to talk about some in the book which is essentially commercial vessels might be flagged by or fly the flag of a country that they have no real connection to, you know, lots of Panamanian and Liberian flagged vessels. And that means in legal terms, Panama and Liberia have the clearest legal jurisdiction over those vessels, but they might have zero interest in really investigating or regulating what's going on on that vessel. Um, and that's why you that's one of the reasons why you get these pockets of effective lawlessness on the oceans, because the country that has the clearest legal jurisdiction 
doesn't have any interest in really pursuing what's going on on those vessels. Um, and what would it take to change that? I mean, that shouldn't be allowed. That sounds, it sounds crazy. It seems like madness. And um, what would be required is some kind of international agreement to enforce a real linkage between the vessel and the flag that, you know, okay, it's got to be owned by a company or it's got to be, you know, staffed by, crewed by people from that country, that there's got to be some, what they call a genuine link between the vessel and the, and the country that has legal jurisdiction. But they've never been able to agree on that in part because the shipping interests are powerful and the shipping interests generally see this as mm. in their interest. An to advantage. Avoid, yeah, to avoid, you know, excessive regulation. Yeah. Oh, it's really just a whole, a whole world, a whole watery world. Uh, fascinating. Um, so could you please tell us, David, now, um, if you could have picked something up or, or taken something with you um, and brought it back from 1982, what would it be? Yeah, and I, <laughs> I was thinking maybe about, you know, I think one of the bombs that was dropped on the Hercules was a dud. And, you know, so I was thinking maybe... You know, if it really weren't dangerous, I could grab that. But uh, but I think uh, I think that would get mixed. So um, I think it would have to be the the signed copy of the final um, treaty from Montego Bay, which, um, you know, all of these uh, diplomats who'd worked on this issue over many of them had worked on it for more than a decade, uh, including some, you know, really interesting characters. Um, I think it would be. It would be really cool to see that signed, have that signed document, um, you know, with all of these signatures affixed to this very long and complicated document. I, I guess physically it exists probably at the UN headquarters in New York. Um, so uh, I suppose I could go there and try to and try to see it. But I think that's what I would that's what I would take. I think that's a great choice, and this has been such um, an unusual and interesting and surprising episode and thank you um for giving me the opportunity to read your book which i really really enjoyed um and i think you know it's something that we should all be thinking about um a lot more than we do so thank you no thank you it was really really fun to to talk with you about it that was me violet moller speaking to david bosco the other day about his new book the poseidon project the struggle to govern the world's oceans it's available now from all good bookshops. For images and maps illustrating our conversation today, please go to tttpodcast.com. There you can also find our whole archive of other episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>